Hi, I'm violinist Sofia Stoyanovic. And I'm Derek Wang, pianist. Hello from New York City. Welcome to American Stories, celebrating American concert music in all its diversity as mirror to the stories of people living in our country today. Wherever you are right now, we hope that you're well, that you've been listening to your favorite music, and that you're staying connected with those you love. Thank you for being with us. In the months since the release of our first episode, our role as musicians in fostering humanity, empathy, and genuine connection within our communities has only felt more urgent. On this episode of American Stories, we're featuring those who tell stories as creative artists. When we read a poem or listen to a piece of music, we experience a journey that takes us outside of ourselves, yet in which we can recognize aspects of our own humanity. In this way, art equips us with tools to grasp the moment that we're living in and to address the questions we're grappling with right now. In this episode, we'll share our performances of music that traces the struggle for justice and peace throughout our country's history to the present day. The three extraordinary creative minds and generous souls with whom we'll be speaking on this episode channel that lineage through their art. First, we'll share a conversation from earlier in the summer with Minneapolis-based poets Kino Ival and Lester Batiste. Kino and Lester chose two poems to share with us. In the aftermath of the death of George Floyd, hearing their poems was a poignant evocation of beauty, joy, and struggle in their experience as black men in America. They also introduced their work with Black Table Arts, an organization that Kino founded in 2015, which gathers black communities together through mentorship and poetry. Most recently, we spoke with Jesse Montgomery, a composer and performer based here in New York. We'll launch this episode after the break by performing a new work for violin and piano that Jesse wrote earlier this year. We've adopted the title of Jesse's work, Peace, as a thread that runs through all of the musical selections that you'll hear today. Our musical tribute to Peace is motivated by two quotations from Martin Luther King Jr. that are engraved on his memorial in Washington, D.C. They read as follows. We must come to see that the end we seek is a society at peace with itself, a society that can live with its conscience. True peace is not merely the absence of tension. It is the presence of justice. At a time in which we're probably all longing for more peace in our lives, we offered this episode in the spirit put forth by Dr. King. All this to come on American Stories. We're so glad you're here. Welcome back to American Stories. In this episode, we're featuring the creative voices of today. Composer Jesse Montgomery wrote Peace, which you're about to hear, in the early months of the pandemic. We are truly lucky to have Jesse on American Stories. You'll hear our conversation with her at the end of the episode. But we begin by sharing her music. Peace opens a space for us in which we can reflect on where we are, it's also a work whose beauty has an unsettled quality. 
The ebb and flow of the music creates an illusion of going somewhere, but we're not sure if we ever arrive there. The music comes to a wonderful close, reminiscent and also ambiguous. It leaves a fleeting feeling, like we've peeked into an interior journey that began before the music started and continues after it finishes. Here's our performance of Peace by Jesse Montgomery.
That was Peace by Jesse Montgomery, from whom we'll be hearing at the end of the episode. Stay tuned. Back in July, Derek and I had a conversation with Kino Eval, the founder of Black Table Arts in Minneapolis, and fellow poet Lester Batiste. In the first part of our conversation, they each shared one of their own poems and introduced the mission of Black Table Arts. We, we had the idea that, you know, if it's all right with you, it'd be great if we could just get into the zone with the poetry. Absolutely. Thank you again for having us um, on this program and to kind of, you know, meditate and think about the role of art in this moment that we're in as a country. Thank you, Lester, for joining us in this space, um, always showing up for the work. So, th- so this is a poem um, that I wrote once. Once I saw a black boy holding a bird. Transit stations don't pet people as well as they spill them. He spilled his fingers as if pouring a bit of himself where there wasn't any life onto the body gently as to not break feathers stroke its spine. The beak blossomed from his backpack greeted me unafraid of my giant black frame. I fell in love with this detail of the day. By the way, his spine bent, the bird and the boy have not had many memories of hands doing this to their bodies, being gentle. The bird's eyes drunk my body as if he knew what it meant to be feared by creatures smaller than him. Drug use happens when communities don't have small birds. There aren't enough birds where I live. The boy became a father dropping seeds into the mouth of a child. There aren't enough children where I live, not ones with homes like the black boy in his backpack. Black men flock for buses like seeds. There aren't enough buses where I live. The bird is now holding the black boy. Feathers stressed out and beaten, beak bruised and breath drunk very gently before flight cradling the black boy in his arm says to me, you got a cigarette? You got something that will set me on fire? And that's the poem. Hey, that's what's up. Snaps, brother, snaps. That last image there with the fire, I mean, that's really one that stays with you. Thank you. Appreciate that. So. This particular poem's title is A Song from the Front Porch. Like a basketball team planning the final play, boys huddle on the block, a reaction like Jay's on the telephone line to police action that encircles the block. Asphalt provides the playground, the amphitheater of extermination Violence, both black on brown and backs ashy on the block. Block on the boys black, black boys on the block. Incarcerated when young, we struggle to erase a grotesque past, picturesque presently on the south side as children play on the block. Breaking the chains of reality and ratios of law and order, a fire so bright it beckons to us left behind on the block. Block on the boys black, black boys on the block. Flamboyant flames illuminate metallic skies decorated with Newport 100s, but blue bodies block. Caution tape 
escape shadows of candy white Tahoes with the yellow lemonade tips. Nonchalant nickums slurp vapor drips while hooded cats splatter blocks. Block on the boys black, black boys on the block. We are the ones trapped in a perpetual struggle milling from Wick plazas to Walgreens around the block. As our brothers and sisters get rich quick and deny our tears, will the meek really inherit everything on the block? That's it. Thank you so much. I mean, the first thing that I pick up on listening to both your poems is there's a great sense of history that comes with the weight, the emotions, are not just generated in the present moment, that it's connected and it, it's connected to the future too. So I just want to ask both of you first, what is your relationship to the past and the future as we think about where we are right now that creates who you are as creative artists and what shapes your voice? For my work and what I try to do when I'm in, in, in spaces held by Black Table Arts is get community members to think about the future, right? So we think that, you know, the poet has a Sankofa sensibility, right? Which means that it's, you know, never taboo to go back and fetch what is at risk of being left behind, right? And this orientation says that not only is it not taboo to do that, but uh, to have a future, you have to do that, right? So it's this Janice character of recording, what's happening, particularly around George Floyd, when, when, when we think about what happened on May 25th. Um, the state, the police, the hierarchies in our society have their narrative, right? But the poet says there's an, a more accurate description that is at risk of being left behind if the poets, if the artists don't um, archive it or write it down in a particular kind of way. So when we think about the orientation towards the future, it's thinking about how can we accurately describe where we might go considering what's happening? And this is in the legacy of Gwendolyn Brooks, right? Who in like 1965 in Chicago coins this term versus journalism, which is poetics as, as journalism, as the, the poet as the fly on the wall to society. So when we think about the activity of writing a poem or gathering poets, it's to keep that um, a memory um, as accurately as we can, but also imagination, you know, how can things mm -hmm. change? How can mm -hmm. things in small installments transform? So for me, my past is always on my mind just because I believe that, I believe in a cliche, you never know where you're going unless you know where you've been, right? Especially in mm -hmm. terms of the ancestry and, you know, family connection, right? For me as a black man, I know that 1865, right? when the Civil War ended, that produced a lot of undocumented slaves, right? Just let loose upon the country of America. And for me, it's really hard that I can't necessarily trace my roots all the way back. So I try to always write that in my poetry and kind of bring that with me wherever I go. Uh, in terms of connecting to the future, I believe my role as a poet in this particular struggle in which we are in uh, kind of goes back to Kino's first comment. He hit it perfectly on the head. I, I got to bear witness, especially to all the crazy things that's going on, right? For me, when uh, George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis, I, I felt a pull or calling to go to the place, 38th and Chicago Avenue South is where he was murdered, right? Outside of Kung Fu. So for me, I feel as if my role 
even though I continue to go out and protest, I continue to spread information about how to rebuild some of the things that were torn down and or burned down in Minneapolis, right? For me, my primary role, I think, is to bear witness and to make sure that the generations that come after us know what happened, especially in Minneapolis. Amazing. Yeah. And to connect it also to your city, your community, which both of your poems do right off the bat. And I think, you know, maybe that just brings us to Black Table Arts, right? You know, we, we've situated it perfectly. So maybe you could just introduce for the people who are going to be listening um, the mission and some of what your projects are and how um, you both got involved. Yeah, yeah, totally. So Black Table Arts is a nonprofit organization that started in 2000. Um, 15. Um, and me personally, I've sort of fell in love with this activity of what what it means to gather poets. And I link that word um, to what the uh, surrealist writers were talking about in uh, the 60s and 70s, which is a poet isn't someone who only write poems, but those who are able to conceive of imagination and empathy. So Black Table Arts gathers poets um, insofar as we make rooms available for those who are able to conceive of imagination and empathy. And we use that as a larger way to think about the role of our artists to keep the memory, imagination, and um, sensitivities of a community alive. Um, but we really think about art also as a way to share vulnerability um, in this, you know, sort of late stage capitalist moment where everything um, is uh, reduced down to um, a commodity. But we're thinking about, you know, what do we do with the songs? You know, what do we do with the poems? What do we do with these um, enclaves of life that happen when you get Black um, artists in, um, in a room and, and we hang out and we laugh loudly and we kick it and we, and we talk about what's on our minds. Um, and when you highlight the relations that are, are possible by sharing art, which is sharing vulnerability, then I, ideas come up. You know, you know, maybe there's a new idea of how to grow food. May you know, you know, maybe the the poet can be in conversation with the garden, or you know, maybe the poet can be in conversation with legislation. And so, it's art for the purpose of you know having a, a lived experience, but art that says you know you could also shape the world. Um, so, so that's what we do when we do um, professional development. We do grant writing. We do conferences. We do bonfires. But on various scales, we ask Black communities, uh, what future do you want to create? So to tell you a little bit of how I came into Black, Black Table Arts, so I believe I moved to Minneapolis in 2015. Um, originally from Chicago, Illinois. Shout out South, South Side. Uh, and then I came to Minneapolis for work. And I was just graduating college and kind of doing my first teaching job. So when I moved to a new city, I didn't necessarily know a lot of people. And I was a writer and I was automatically like, man, I need a writing group so I can kind of make myself feel at home in Minneapolis and to, you know, get the creative juices flowing with other folks who are like-minded with me. And I found Black Table Arts because of a, because they posted their Black Lines Matter workshop one day. And I was just like, man, this looks dope. I would love to go to a space where there are other Black artists, other Black creatives, other Black thinkers like me and kind of vibe and think about stuff and respond to poetry prompts. And it was really cool, right? And for me, I just feel the love that Kino and all the other members who, you know, come and go, right, have provided for me. And in terms of what do I want to do, I want to continue to offer that love to other Black artists so that they can both feel confident in what they create 
and so that they can also have a space where they can get real critique, right? And I think that for a young poet to come into the workshop, for any poet, whether they're established or, you know, just beginning, mid-career, right, whatever, I think that we try to create a space that is both welcoming, right, and it's both, at least for us, because we're Black Table Arts, African-American and just like Black-centric, right, which for me is really necessary, especially in the things that I write about, because I write about issues that both are about the Black community and for the Black community, right? And sometimes other people don't necessarily understand that. And it's really nice to have that space, right? One of the things with this episode, so our theme that we're meditating on as artists, musicians, poets, voices in this moment is peace, but not in the way that I think a cliche many of us consider peace as just like a natural state of being, that it is truly a fight to attain peace, not only personally, but in communities. Like this is a struggle, although it might be this utopian ultimate goal. And we recognize that it's going to take that. Um, I was wondering if you might speak a little bit about that, what you hope to do and what that means to you. Yeah, so I, I appreciate that you said two words, peace and utopia. And I think that when, when um, I hear those words, particularly, um, in the context of the country right now. Um, it's important to know that in this present moment, um, it is not peaceful, right? Um, so I think it's just important to be keyed into that, you know, um, sensitivity to ask how is violence being visited upon um, undeserving people, right? You know, vulnerable populations. But that word utopia is one that's close to my heart. And, and it's one that I've been um, studying a lot of recently, particularly when I think about the recent anthology that Lester is in as well, um, A Garden of Black Joy. And particularly when we think about the vocation of the poet, it's one, and you know, people have their debates about it, but I do think all poets have utopian sensibilities. Um, one of my favorite thinkers, uh, Sheldon Wolin out of Princeton University, right, coins the term fugitive democracy. And basically, it's, it's sort of utopian in that he realizes that the democracy is an activity, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's more than a form of government. Well, you know, he says it's not a form of government. It's a, actually a moment to return to community. And, and I say that because I think it links to this sort of poetic activity of just gathering, right? Um, as opposed to being this sort of static uh, established state, right? So when we think about utopian communities in the, um, in the United States, particularly during the 19th century, they didn't last long, you know? All of these, you know, utopian communities, maroon communities, they did not last long. And I think that, um, it's a sobering thing to just understand that, that whenever we're talking about, say, a Garden of Black Joy or a Black Table Arts event or um, a utopian community, it's all temporary. And a constant theme in the Black radical tradition is getting out of Dodge. You know, we're not going to be able to stay here long. We're going to have to decamp and keep it moving. And I think that um, what we're trying to figure out and what I try to think about is the modes of relation that make it possible to move um, quickly um, and keep our songs intact and keep our poems intact and keep our joy intact, knowing that under these constraints, these sites of possibility probably aren't gonna last that long. So how can we 
um, lean into each other and love each other. Jordan Neil Hurston has this quote, I will uh, wrestle me up a future or die trying. Mm. And I think that that sort of commitment, that, that, that sort of fierceness to determine yourself a future um, is important, particularly under these temporary projects that don't last long. Kino rounds out the first part of our conversation by returning to the poetic mission that he and Lester share, to channel the memory of lineage and history toward imagining one's future. We'll return to hear more from Kino and Lester shortly. African-American spirituals are a body of songs that have been handed down through generations. To use Kino's phrase, these are the songs that have been kept intact. One of them is Nobody Knows the Trouble I See. In preparing our performance of this spiritual, which we'll share with you next, we listen to renditions coming from many different musical traditions. Whether sung by Sam Cooke, the King of Soul, Mahalia Jackson, channeling the gospel tradition, or Marian Anderson, in operatic style, Nobody Knows the Trouble I See speaks to the experience of keeping faith through difficult times. The arrangement we're performing today is by J. Rosamond Johnson, published in 1917 and set for the violin according to his wish by Maud Powell. Powell was an American violinist whose pioneering recitals and recordings at the turn of the 20th century took her across the country and established her enduring legacy in the violin tradition. Here is our performance of Nobody Knows the Trouble I See.
Nobody knows the trouble I see. Glory, hallelujah. That was our performance of The Spiritual, arranged by J. Rosamond Johnson and set for violin by Maud Powell. We return now to the second half of our conversation with Kino Yval and Lester Batiste, which begins by discussing how poetic forms relate to artistic purpose. I think absolutely form has its place. I think that form and technique and craft are fun things to do. And I think they need to be um, spoken about in those terms. I think they need to be spoken about in terms of a playground and thinking about how do we precisely describe the, the images that have been around for with um, poets forever. And we revisit these images of birds and trees and um, loved ones and you know all of these details of life. And so form allows us to sharpen the way we tell those images. But also, um, we're in a world, and that world right now is hurting a lot of people. Um, and I'm interested in thinking about what are the ways in which we could lessen the violence visited upon people. The reason why I'm a poet is to advance myself personally, right? I came to poetry not really being able to articulate my emotions and verbalize my emotions because I was socialized in a very toxic masculine environment. Unlike, you know, I think I would call myself a traditionalist poet, right? I love forms, right? I would agree with him that I think that forms are playgrounds for poets to play in. But for me, in terms of advancing myself, especially because I'm an African-American man, I take and look at Claude McKay, right? A Jamaican-born poet who writes nothing but a European form in terms of a sonic, but makes it his own, right? I try to believe, as Ezra Pound said, make it new, man. And I try to take those old school European forms that are often uh, related to white people, right? Think about uh, Shakespeare, right? Edmund Spencer, all those old cats. I think that for me, I try to take what they have and try to make it my own so that I can be like, yo, this is just a thing that is meant for everybody, not necessarily for the elite, right? I'm the kind of poet that takes this craft as very solitary, right? It's a joy for me to connect with other artists, right? But for me, poetry was always at least my first love in terms of how I can spend hours of my, of my time to myself, speaking to myself, that makes sense. I wanna ask you sort of a difficult question that might not have a clear answer. Why do you, think in your both of your own personal opinions it's so difficult for people to connect with being empathetic just in general in this moment and where do you think the answer lies in maybe resolving that because it seems like empathy as a concept is in so much of our understanding and our patience and our finding peace but it's so difficult to actually have in our lives universally especially as americans but universally so yeah, the last poets um, tell us that we are suffering from a deficit of empathy, from an empathy deficit. But also, um, I think there are, there are you know doctrines of fear in place that convinces us that certain people who are say like without a home or without certain I don't know from everything from degrees to certain physical attire. Uh, there's something in our imaginations that say they might, you know, for example, be, you know, uh, mentally ill 
or they might have gone through you know the prison system or they might um, be involved in particular crimes. So I think that, um, yeah, so working to get over that fear. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, putting yourself in sites of community, um, but also taking the time. Uh, I, I do think taking the time to read is important. I, I, I don't want to come off as one of these artists that reduces everything down to books. I mean, I, I like books, I'm biased, but I, I, I also think, um, you know, information and knowledge um, are also outside of the book object. So I think study is incredibly important, but I also think, yeah, putting yourself in um, unusual or, you know, outside of your normal rituals of community are also important. First and foremost, I gotta say, I love the hard questions. Second off, to respond to the hard question, I think, at least for me personally, it's a couple of things, right? I think for me, it is the capitalistic society in which we live in, right? Uh, I think Toni Morrison said it best when she said in the blue aside, this land is unyielding, right? It's unyielding towards those African-American girls in that book, but it's also unyielding towards everyone else, right? Uh, I also think that another thing that keeps us from connecting with one another is the simple is history, right? We as a society, at least Western society and or specifically the U.S., we haven't necessarily reckoned or done de dealt with our past in a very much reflective and a cathartic way, right? This is why we continue to see the same cycle of things happen. That's what I would say is why we are failing to connect with one another. I really see the connection that the two of you bring in your vision between what you, what you call the empathy deficit, meaning also the lack of imagination, the compassionate imagination, and the lack of reckoning with our history, as Lester, you brought up. Yeah. Absolutely. Lester, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that you had this desire to go see the street corner where George Floyd was murdered. Um, I just want to talk to you a little bit about what your feelings were um, that made you want to go and what it was like being there. So when I first went down there, so I went down there, I think a couple of days, maybe four days after the murder took place. So I live in North Minneapolis, which is a predominantly African-American neighborhood. But I was like rolling through the city towards South Minneapolis, towards Cup Foods. Uh, I just kept seeing all the artwork and stuff like that. And I don't know, for me, going to see a place where a man was murdered while also seeing all the beautiful artwork, all the beautiful organization, there were, there were food vendors outside like of Cup Foods where the protest was happening as well as vendors kind of along the way offering free food, right? There was a lot of grocery store pickups set up on street corners because uh, that's, the community was just coming together, right? So for me, I really had mixed emotions. Uh, I recently read William Faulkner's Dry September and there's a line that he says, sometimes life is caught between its tragic and beautiful mutations, right? And I was just like, dang, William, that's a fire right there, boy. As I was going to the place where, again, Mr. Floyd was murdered, I was like, shucks. I had this feeling of both joy because of the art and all the beautiful things that's happened, but also I felt sorrow because of the action that made all this happen. Does that make sense? My first time I went down there, man, it was cool because first and foremost, there was a DJ like just playing songs, and he said, like, hey, I'm a DJ. I'm not necessarily sure what I can do, but... I got, I, I like came down here to be with you all. So I brought my speakers, I brought my turntables. And I'm just gonna play music because that's what I know how to do, right? 
mm-hmm. there's a couple folks, uh, a couple people who was from, I guess, some church organizations who like read scriptures and uh, sang a couple like uh, uh, gospels, which was really, really cool. Uh, and also one surprising thing, man, I was so surprised to see so many white people out, yo. Just because I remember I was in Minneapolis when uh, Philando Castile was murdered in 2016, when Jamar Clark was murdered in uh, 2015, both by police officers, right? I remember marching then when I, it was just nothing but like black people, right? Especially when Jamar Clark got killed because it happened on the north side. But when I went down to South Minneapolis, I was just like, man, man, where all these white people come from? Like, that's what's up. Like, I appreciate that. And so, again, for me, I just had mixed emotions of both joy for all the actions that have taken place, but at the same time, sorrow for the action that got all, that jumped all this stuff off, man. It's really powerful to hear you talk about the community that was there. We're going to finish with one more question for both of you, which we're asking of all the people we speak to in the stories we gather um, on American Stories, which is, what does being American mean to you? A lot of our work here with our series is not to validate that we're happy in the moment or how our country is existing, but um, to have faith in these bigger ideas and um, things that unify us um, as a people. And I just want to ask that question to you. What does being American mean to you? Yeah, um, I really appreciate that question. I recognize that I was born in the 90s in a, in a very American city in the south side of Chicago. I totally recognize that. I totally recognize that if I were to travel across the so-called borders of this country, I would carry that identity with me. So I'm not naive about that. But, you know, Vincent Harding, who helped Martin Luther King write his um, speech that was opposed to the Vietnam War, said that um, I am a citizen of a world that does not yet exist, that I am a citizen of a country that does not yet exist. And Roberto Unger reminds us that to be a, a poet is to live as if you are a citizen of another world. And so I say that to locate us back to imagination. Um, And I think that um, America is a term for me that is understandably common given um, the history we come out of to describe uh, a set of structures and state um, apparatuses that we live under, um, absolutely. I also, though, am excited for the new set of terms or the new uh, worlds that can be created those processes, um, we might call them America, or we just might create a different sort of uh, term or, a, you know, a different country or a different, uh, you know, opportunity to live. So that's, that's, that's what I would say. For me, I think that what it means to be an American, at least, I think in the past and very much currently, it means to be a walking contradiction, right? Mm. Uh, we kick folks off their own land and start to claim it was ours, right? when the Mayflower landed and all those Puritans came off the Mayflower, they were fleeing from religious persecution only to replicate it with the Salem witch trials, right? Uh, Even to this day, man, we continue to contradict ourselves both in our morals, right? And what we practice and what we preach, right? So I think what it means to be an American, at least for me, is to be a contradiction, a walking contradiction. Yet, I also believe that what it means to be an American is ever evolving and forever becoming just because we this great experiment that are very very much racist and or misguided forefathers tried to jump off was 
wholehearted, but we have to honestly admit that what they had in mind wasn't meant for everybody, right? And I think that if we continue not to reckon with our past, that we will continue to only repeat the mistakes of the past and until we again start to fully face what we've done both collectively and individually, that we can begin to shape America to what it actually will be. I personally still believe in those ideals that America has grown up on. I know that I don't, I don't think that the meritocracy of, oh, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is actually a, a thing of existence. I still debate and go back and forth if the American dream is a freaking lie or whatever, but I don't know. For me, I still have faith in this country, even though it continues to treat people like me not very well. That's powerful. And yeah. it's so great that, you know, what do you stake that faith on? But you two show through your work, through the community building, through the art, that the spirit of imagination, of, of empathy, of building that community, that you can create more strength than, than might seem possible.
Welcome back to American Stories. You just heard our reinterpretation of Peace, Peace by Bill Evans. At the top of the episode, we began our musical meditation on peace with a new work by Jesse Montgomery. In the following conversation, you'll get to hear what inspired her to write Peace and what continues to guide her voice as a composer. Thank you so much for joining us on American Stories, Jesse. We're really happy to have you. Sophia and I have had such a pleasurable time digging into your score, Peace. And we've taken the title and the concept of peace, uh, we've adopted that as a thread that runs throughout our episode. We wanted to ask you, what prompted you to choose the title Peace for this work? And sort of how did you come to that? So I was asked to write this piece by an amazing lovely colleague, Elena Urioste, and her husband, Tom Poster. They wanted, um, you know, a short duo for them to play. She was um, commissioning short works by composers um, to write during COVID, basically. Peace. I think I was craving some peace. I think I was, um, with all the chaos um, and confusion, that was the, the concept and the and the and the feeling of having any kind of settling, um, I feel like staying open to what's coming and allowing for that kind of openness um, is like a challenging thing to do when you're under a lot of stress. But I feel like that is also part of the practice of dealing with of getting through this time. You know, I think the idea when I was writing it was that I wanted to write something that was for the listener. I wanted to write a, a song, basically. It sort of has a song-like quality to it. Um, so, yeah, and the song is something that you sing to yourself, you know, to, I think of it as a way to sort of calm calm yourself down and or refocus your energy. Yeah, and as a violinist yourself, right, the, the voice of the song being the violin, um, mm-hmm. we can tell that it speaks from a very personal place, the music. Mm. Nice. Can you tell us a little bit about your life as both a violinist and a composer? Because those are very different things. Sure. And how you found your voice, I guess, as a composer. Because being trained as a violinist myself, um, you know, identity and concept of your voice is very different when you're a performer versus a creative artist. Totally. Yeah. So, you know, I started the traditional track of uh, studying violin and went to Juilliard for my undergrad. Um, And I actually turned to composing again um, after my undergrad, partly because I was looking for, I wasn't feeling connected to the process of interpretation. I felt connected to my friends in the ensemble. I was playing in a string quartet at that time, but I was starting to realize that I had, I didn't feel confident about our interpretations. And I was like, why don't I feel confident about this? Mm. Um, so how, what are some ways in which I can sort of um, engage myself more in the process of interpreting? So I thought if I start composing again, I'll, I'll start to like learn a little bit more about interpretation. Um, Cause once mm. you write something down and hand it over to someone else, then the process is reversed. Right. Yeah. I just wanted to have more agency over my, interpretive abilities um it was like that simple at that time now that i'm thinking back that was really like just the beginning it took you know a long time to sort of like untrain my interpretation skills that were passed down from my teachers that were basically just like me regurgitating the same thing that i was taught mm. yep. um <laughs> and defending it you know <laughs> defending it with all my might 
Right. Um, but I wanted to come up with, you know, my own connection to those kinds of interpretations or come up with my own ideas. And so that's sort of where the like composing bridge kind of happened. Um, and then from there, it was, then it just became, you know, I was lucky, I was fortunate enough to be always in a performing ensemble that was willing to play my music. And so then those things could sort of live together. And so it's beautiful how your journey as a composer has always been with your uh, ensemble, right? With your, your <laughs> friends and your fellow musicians. And when you write for them, you talk about writing pieces, you know, for your own quartet, do mm -hmm. specific musical personalities of your friends, are those in your imagination as you write? Oh yeah, for sure. Yes. Um, like for example, pieces that I've written, like while I was a member of the Catalyst Quartet, there's a piece that's called Source Code, which has like a really epically big cello solo at the end. It was inspired by um, the Britain String Quartet number two, the big cello solo that happens at the end of the, well, it happens in the Chaconne. Da -dun, da -dun, da -dun. Oh, I forget. Anyway, source code actually was written like very much with Carlos Rodriguez in mind. And he plays the you know what out of it on the recording and other pieces that I've written with um, friends sort of personalities and also like their playing style in mind um, has always been really satisfying. This next question has a little bit sort of in that same vein, but um, how does your creative process relate to your own personal life experiences? And to what extent does your music bear witness to issues in society? That is a great question. Let me see. I have actually, yeah, I've really been grappling with that very question, I feel like, uh, recently. So I came from an a artistic household, very creative household. My mom's an actress and my dad a musician and composer. And, you know, the idea of like being free in your art and being like personal about your art is something I just... I grew up around, but I have only recently started to really um, go for it consciously. I feel like the, the pieces that I've written up until this point do have social commentary in them and also very personal reflections on, on my own identity as well. But I've been a little bit bashful about it um, and in discussing it. And now I'm starting to realize that there are certain elements of my music that have always been there that are, that I guess define my voice as we're calling it. Um, and sort of looking at what that is and developing that even further right now. There are certain pieces um, that are direct um, reflections on, on societal issues, such as uh, Banner, for example which is uh, basically a protest song of the Star Spangled Banner. And the commission itself was in order to commemorate the Star Spangled Banner. So I, I commemorated it, but I messed with it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> basically, I think it's important to make a comment if you feel connected to that comment. If you feel some agency around a certain subject, then Yes, I think it's important to either speak out or use whatever artistic medium that you have in order to communicate that further. Um, I think the arts is a place where people can be free 
in their expression of if there's an injustice and they feel they want to say something or bring together a community around a certain topic, music mm -hmm. and the arts is a beautiful place and a beautiful way to do it, just the way you guys are doing it. I do think we have we have a responsibility to sort of either engage a conversation or um, bring a focus um, to a topic, not as a banner, to use my own song title, mm -hmm. but um, not just a wave wave a flag, but just but it but you feel like personally committed to that thing, mm -hmm. that movement or that mm -hmm. change that you're looking for. Um, I think that's when you say something. Yeah, I mean that's really powerful because it takes a sort of investigation of your own conscience mm -hmm. to know when to put that in there, when you, when you really have no other option but to do that. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, it is. It's about your own conscience, for sure. And that will help you know what the right timing is and what the right mode is when you're reflecting on it yourself and you're not just reacting to something else. Mm. Yeah. I'm wondering, are you conscious of... I guess the Americana label that some people, you know, yeah. have written it, that your music is capturing in a wonderful yeah. way. You know, it's it's gorgeous, but is that a, you know, that's a double-edged sword in terms of originality and also, you know, th there's identity and there's culture appropriation and things like that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, I I don't love it. I don't love it. But there is an element of pulling from different sources and sort of finding where they meet. That is a lot about a lot of what I do in my music. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think it, writing music in America is, is complicated anyway, mm -hmm. is like full of contradictions anyway, right? Just like that word Americana is. Mm -hmm. um, and then defining a multicultural country as your as your country being about all these people coexisting is in itself like a hard thing. I mean, I feel fortunate to have grown up in New York because if you grow if you're in New York, you see all different kind of people, black, white, brown, upside down, right side up, rich, poor, whatever, on a subway together at nine o'clock in the morning. You know, if that's possible all the time, then we can figure, you know, we can figure it out. That's beautiful. You've kind of already answered this, but we always phrase this to everyone we interview. <laughs> but what does being American mean to you in this present mm -hmm. moment? Yeah, I think being American right now means huh, knowing who you are and where you are in time and space and in history and knowing our history just know what happened just know why we're you know know about slavery know about immigration laws read the constitution it's about knowledge we have to get better at being knowledgeable about where we come from in order to have identity in order to be able to go on, we have to be very, very, very astute learners right now and teach each other and mm -hmm. listen. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for peace as the oh. world that it brings us to of, of receptivity emotionally mm -hmm. is, oh, I yeah. think, the grounding for exactly the kind of 
venture and learning and in being humble and thinking about our own identity and our own presence at this time. That's so beautiful to hear, you guys. Thank you so much. Um, if it does that, then we're doing okay. Jesse's piece carries on a lineage of song that we trace to spirituals such as Nobody Knows the Trouble I See, which we performed earlier in this episode. Previously, we heard Bill Evans' Peace Peace. Now, we close with one final variation on the theme of peace. Here's our arrangement of a jazz classic, Peace by the great Horace Silver. Thank you. 
Thank you for listening to American Stories. That was our arrangement of Peace by Horace Silver. Our theme music is from Charles Ives' fourth violin sonata, Children's Day at the Camp Meeting. Wherever you've joined us from today, we hope that you stay well. See you next time, and take care.